we have in mind to, to, to make this a little bit of a, of a different hour again, which we did something like this yesterday where it was a conversation. And uh, a conversation in this session where I would not want to suggest that I'm an expert, I don't think Tim would either. It's about spiritual lives, the spiritual life of an apologist. And my assumption is that every one of us here knows something that every one of us needs to know. So it's going to be a, a discussion, a conversation. And uh, if it's about spiritual life, it would be rather ironic not to begin with prayer. So let me pray for us. Father, we, we want to live our lives for you, in you, and to have you live in us and through us. We want to be devoted to you. We want our hearts to be centered on you. We want our minds to be trained and instructed by you. We want our lives to be the fruit of your life in us. And I pray that this time together would be an expression of that happening and a preparation for it happening even more as we leave here. In Jesus' name. First question, the spiritual life of an apologist. It's kind of an odd topic. Why don't we just talk about spiritual life, spiritual life of the Christian? Is there something special, something different, something unusual about the spiritual life of an apologist? Potentially different or actually different? What's, why would we talk about this and why would you come to a session about it? What do you think? We're in conversation mode. You'd have to be willing to defend as opposed to just say, well, I can't do anything about that. Uh, somebody else's problem. Okay. So you, you're kind of saying you have to take responsibility instead of letting somebody else take it. Is that the point? Yeah. I'm trying to understand what you're saying. You're willing to defend uh, the apologetics is so right in front of you, you're willing to defend the faith. Yeah. Uh, whereas, I guess I've, I'm from a scientist background. I hear so many people in the church say, "Well, I can't understand science. I don't." And just you know, lose an opportunity. It's sort of like talking to a Muslim and say, "Well, I don't understand your Muslim religion. I don't want to understand it. And so, how are you going to reach that Muslim?" So you're going the extra mile to, to learn their side of the story yeah. and bring them out. There's a lot of extra miles to go given so many apologetic issues. Yeah. I think that there is a need for some specialization. Yeah. Learning the other side. Taking responsibility. Um, what else? Developing expertise, like like Tim. Yeah. Try this one. Try that one. By the way, I was a music education major, but I failed blackboard writing, so I had to go into ministry. So. <laughs> that is a little more. Opaque, at least, even though it's multi. 
point, developing expertise. What are some other things that would make our spiritual lives a topic of special discussion? Well, I think that um, the Christian who's really not into apologetics, who would say maybe they focus a little more on the heart and not so much on the mind. Yeah. And perhaps apologists are in danger of focusing so much on the mind and not enough on the heart. Yeah. Yeah. I would say when you when you engage in some you know whatever and, and you've been having these debates and talking to people that kind of thing. I mean I don't know if everybody's like that, but it starts to weigh on me a little bit. I gotta back out. I back away a little bit. So it just starts getting heavy after a okay, while. Okay, the heaviness. Yeah. Yes. Well, I it's nice to know answers, but there are times when I wish I didn't know that questions, because <laughs> ignorance would be bliss. Yeah. When you say heaviness, would you elaborate on that? Well, you know, it's, I, I feel I'm pretty solid in my faith, and, and, and I have some, some decent arguments, or at least I have arguments that other people put together. Uh, but then, you know, you start, you, you talk to somebody, and you, you got this going on, and then they'll hit you for something from left field you hadn't heard before, and then it's like, that makes good sense, but then I'm, I'm, I'm sound enough in my in my, my studies that it's like, I know there's an answer, I just gotta go find it. It's gotta yeah. work on it, but it's like, man, it's just kinda like a, like a little kick to the chest a little bit sometimes. Well, that's, that, that, oh shoot, I crossed my bell there. Um, trying to make this darker. Responsibility. That's it, yeah. Because I thought you meant something of a different character in terms of, but, but it, it's still a, a, the heaviness theme. And it, it, I, it hit me this morning when I was looking at the Newsweek article that um, that Rob Bowman was talking about, and I read the next line that he didn't get to. He could have said so much more. And in the next paragraphs, the uh, Eichenwald was talking about the um, the fact that if we are going to take a stand against homosexuality, we shouldn't go to court, because the Bible says not to go to court, at least not against Christians, and besides which, if you're going to um, throw out some of the Old Testament, you have to throw out the whole Old Testament, and there were two utterly ignorant arguments packed into a very short space in that thing, and what I wanted to do was cry. And there's the heaviness of facing the spiritual death, spiritual ignorance out there, and and spiritual. No, Rhett, those are not for you. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. So that's that's the kind of heaviness that came to my mind when you were when you when you used that word. Yeah. I think I think along with that, there's sort of this heaviness reading this article, and you know, I just have get a headache from so many face palms, but yeah. to, to realize that there there are people out there who will read this and it will cause them to doubt their faith. Yeah. And that knowing that, that they might not have anybody to go to. They might go to their pastor and their pastor has no idea how to answer any of that. Uh, that that's, that's a heaviness that's or they might not go to their pastor because they know that their pastor won't have any idea how to handle it. 
and it'll end up worse if they cause the conflict by going than by just internalizing the doubt and staying away. And so I, I'm subject to this. I feel, because uh, I think we all like to have some kind of measurable success. We'd like to do something and have something to show for it. Yeah. Something you can point to or count. And you often find if you're in this area that you'll have conversations with people and you'll think you're making good points and bringing up good reasons and it will just be like talking to the wall. And you realize formally that this can happen. You say, well, yeah, you know, people cannot listen. I know that can happen. It's one thing to say that and it's another thing to get into a conversation like that and just say, this is going nowhere, especially if it's somebody who says, yeah, I used to be a Christian. Maybe somebody you knew when he was actively going to church and seemed involved in worship, and now this person's just out there, and you can't make any progress. Right. And that's a place where you really learn what it means to trust God. Because if you're, if you're waiting to cut another notch in your belt and it isn't happening, then you're looking at the wrong kind of thing. You're looking at this the wrong kind of way. I would love to be the one who's there when they fall to their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? But most of the time, that's not what the apologist gets. Yeah, I, just kind of on that, I think sometimes we can use the place where, you know, we think we can, we can maybe debate someone to Christianity or give them a convincing enough argument to where they they don't know, like there's no way they can not receive Christ you know, yeah. um, but then we, I think sometimes are heavily relying on ourselves and our knowledge instead of relying on the Holy Spirit yeah. in that person's life well, I'll give you one from my experience that is kind of like that but almost worse for me, I know someone who's told me okay I believe God exists and you've answered my questions I think Christianity is probably true but I'm just not sure I want to commit and this is a very intelligent person when she says I think it's probably true she knows what that means and she'll even say it's frustrating to me that the main thing that's coming between me and Christianity is myself. And I just want to say, but 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 in that case, don't you see? And it's that's not where it's at. There's nothing I can do at this point but be there, pray for her, but you can't force people into the kingdom of God. And and, and sometimes the life of an apologist would be a lot easier if we could, but also think where that road leads. I can force you to join my religion. Oh, wow. That didn't sound good at all, did it? It can't be done. You can't do it. Related to self-reliance. Yeah. Let's say uh, this is an intelligence scale, and this is the average intelligence of the average church. Now, tell me where to stop. I'm going to go up the line. Tell me where to stop when you think I hit the average intelligence of the people in this room. 
Where do I stop? Go all the way to the top. <laughs> <laughs> You're not telling Compared to who? Just your average churchgoer. Yeah. The, the point is made already. I, I, I suspect that the average intelligence in this room is significantly higher than the average intelligence in the church. At least, maybe not in terms of agricultural engineering, but in terms of things we do at church, which is talk about the Bible and stuff. So there is incredible space in here for pride because we are smarter than they are, okay? On these topics, I am dumber than most of the people in my church when it comes to laying tile on the kitchen floor, or most of the men at least. But on the topics that come up in church, we are smarter than they are. Pride. I, uh, I don't know if any of you, would, I hope none of you saw this, but it was on a Facebook group where that was semi-public where someone said that you should believe me because I have an IQ of 160. That's a little self-reliant and proud. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I, may I just say that there, there's nothing quite like teaching on a university campus to make you realize that a lot of people with PhDs and IQs of 160 are significantly messed up. Right. And and that's actually a. That's kind of a performative contradiction. A performative contradiction is something that's not necessarily illogical in, in itself, but if someone says it, it has to be false. In other you mean like my saying to you, I can't speak a word of English? Yeah. Right. And, and it's, it's almost a performative contradiction because a person with an IQ of 160 should know that using that as a basis <laughs> for argument is really just... <laughs> and really stupid. Yeah, yes. that's um, <laughs> There you go. But anyway, let's get off that. We're, um, the there there another one that we talked about yesterday. If you were happen to be in our conversation here yesterday, was was the the and this is a spiritual um, a spiritual dimension or or something that affects our spiritual lives is the loneliness of being different. The uh, we we asked for a show of hands yesterday. It might be a different group in here today. How many of you feel really different from the rest of the people in your church? That's a significant number of us. Yeah. And and so you go to church and you hear a sermon and you think, well, if I were up there, I would be preaching this, and they're not letting me, and nobody listens to me. <coughs> that happen? Or it bothers you that the person who is speaking can't pronounce names of Bible places or church fathers or Bible characters? Yes. Now there was in, uh, an issue of Philosophia Christi where, where it's actually done as a school of a parody on, on the proper pronunciation of Augustine. 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 But anyway. Potato, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which one is it, though? I still want to know. Well, are you, you British or are you American? I'm American. 
Okay, are you the kind of American who agrees with me or the kind who disagrees with me? Yeah, I mean, it basically goes down to that. Yeah. You say it either way, and somebody, you may be assured, whichever way you say it, somebody that you wish wasn't going to do this will come up and say, you know, actually, that's... All right. So, are, are we... So flip a coin and yeah, go. Do we face different issues? I say all these times. Yeah, all this time. <laughs> do, do we face different issues? I, I, I think that we are not necessarily. I, I don't want to stereotype us, but I think we're at risk of these kinds of issues. And should we add it? Is there anything else we should add to that list? I would put one in. But somebody, you go first. I feel that um, when I'm looking at discussion boards and apologists get in discussion boards. Yeah. Not only is there an issue of pride, but sometimes we get a little angry. Okay. And, um, and we, our spiritual life should try to prevent some of that. Yeah. So some uh, anger management issues may come up sometimes as certain of us try to interact with people who just seem too dumb to believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you are kidding me. Yeah, but I spent 36 years in full-time counter-cult apologetics, and I have to fight the problem of cynicism about the church. Yeah, there is yeah. not a desire to know or to be able to witness. And my success in reaching people in the cults is through training Christians right. to do what I do. Since they won't come to the cults, won't come to me. I have to train Christians. And the gatekeepers to the Christians are the pastors, and they don't see the issue. And that leads to cynicism, frustration, anger, depression, yeah. all those kind of things. And I finally had to back up and say, God, it's your church. As bad as it is, you love it. Teach me how to love it. Yeah. Um, just something that I've been thinking a lot about, like, since I started like looking into apologetics and stuff is like you know in apologetics how do we apply the principle or the scripture that Paul writes in Corinthians you know you know I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified you know he did yeah. not come with you know eloquence and wisdom of words and stuff so like you know how do we apply that in apologetics because I I I've noticed that a lot of times in apologetics, apologetics becomes so like philosophical, and you know I've seen people dance around the issues and not get to the gospel, you know, and and like I just have I have a hard time like I I have a hard time doing that, and to me it, it kind of seems like you're not putting enough uh, trust in the Word of God whenever you don't use the Word of God in your apologetics and when you don't preach the gospel, you know, and I've seen that I've seen a lot of that and and I just want to know like like how much of the word of God can we use in our in our you know logical reasoning with atheists or in or should I just so different people have different approaches, you know, right. so I just want to know by the way, when we talk about missiological approaches to apologetics, which is I think tomorrow, that is going to be, uh, that would be one way to describe the topic of that, uh, of that whole hour. So come back for that. Um, someone, there's an email here. 
there but that's not the normal reaction and then on the other hand you go to work I had a friend talk to me about this he's a computer programmer and he's a sharp guy but computer programmers rate really 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 high on the obnoxiously intelligent scale and he was surrounded by senior colleagues on the programming team whose favorite meal at lunch was Christian and he was just getting roasted time after time after time. Now, he liked apologetics. He could actually give some answers to things. But they did the Fragenblitzen. They did the, you know, well, what about this? He'd get halfway into a sentence starting to address it. Well, what about that? Well, blah, blah, blah. But no, you can't stop. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you can't cope with a massive, that's like trying to kill hornets, right? One at a time? All right, bring it. Um, Seven or eight on one? No, thank you. So he would uh, he would get very discouraged, not because he thought they had better arguments than he did. That wasn't it. Just discouraged the way that we all get discouraged when there are people we recognize as intelligent people. We'd like to get along with them, and they're not only being obnoxious, they're being obnoxious about your Christianity and about the fact that you would even dare to think that there's anything intellectually credible about it. That can be a real burden. Yep. I've had that happen uh, at the cafeteria table at university, right? Oh, yeah, here he comes, you know. Hi, guys. Nice day to you, too. You know, where, where, how do we start the conversation now? And, and that's, and here's a problem. I mean, yeah. then that leads over into the desire to strike back, right? Okay, guys, you think you're such hot stuff. Let's have it out. And that's, I hesitate to say the word never because I'm a logician and that's a universally quantified term, but I don't know when that's a good response, right? The, the let's duke it out. As far as I'm concerned, maybe the only case you should do that is where somebody else is under attack and you're the only one who can stand in the gap. Yeah. 
but for yourself, that's a pride thing. That's really, that's very serious. Uh, yeah, I'm a slow-talking guy, and people interrupt when you're talking long, complex subjects. Uh, have you found any techniques that will work to keep people from just cutting you off and going, what about this one? I, I think there's a good technique that Greg Kokel discusses in some of his material on what he calls tactics. He calls a person looked at a steamroller, and he says, if somebody's steamrolling you, one of the classic techniques is they'll ask you a question, you'll get started on an answer, and they'll interrupt you and take you off some other direction. What he recommends doing, this is just a little bit of practical uh, advice since, since you asked. He recommends saying, well, well, now hang on a minute. You asked me this question, right? Um, and I, I'd, like to, I'd like to answer that. When I'm done, I'll give you a chance to respond. Is that okay? Funny thing is, that those last three words, is that okay, are maybe the three most important words of the whole thing. In interpersonal communication, that's called getting a receipt. You're getting an informal promise from the person that if you abide by your side of a little conversational bargain, they'll abide by their side of it. Usually, anyone of goodwill will say, okay, sure. Then you pick up where you left off, if you can remember where you were, and you keep on going. Now, there's a chance that they'll forget themselves and they'll interrupt again. Coco says, again, with as much grace as you can muster, say, well, hang on a second. We agreed. This time, you, you remind them of the bargain. We agreed that you're going to let me finish my answer to this one, right? And and I'll I'll let you I'll let you have your chance then. After that, oh okay yeah sorry that's usually the response. When you finish, keep your end of the bargain. Let them have a chance to say something. But it's almost never profitable to go herring off after one question after another after another after another. We did a little, in our Rachia Christie group at Western, we did a little role-playing on this. I got paired with one student. He's an eager beaver. I love him. Um, but the, the idea was I was going to role-play an atheist who was using this distraction technique, and he was supposed to model the proper behavior, saying, well, now hold on, you know, one thing at a time. He couldn't do it. <laughs> I said, well, what about X? Well, yeah, you know, about X, the thing that you need to understand. Well, well, wait, what about Y? Oh, yeah, Y. And he'd go off, and, and I brought up like six in a row, and he just chased me around like a puppy chasing its tail. It was almost distressingly easy to keep him off balance just by never letting him finish any reply. He's a smart guy. He'd have had good things to say on any one of the topics I brought up if I let him finish a sentence. I just deliberately didn't. So yeah, I'm a really nasty person to do the role play with. But that's one way. Um, I, hang just a second, I'm going to get you next. Uh, another thing that I've seen done effectively, I haven't tried this myself, but it is something I've seen done, is just to have a piece of paper, and when somebody brings up topic number two, you say, you know what, that's a great question. Let's write this down here, and when we're done with the current one, we'll come to that one next. Speaking of staying on topic, we do want to make sure we stay on this one. 
Sorry, but that, that was an okay diversion. But for I'm, I'm going to let David say something here because he has had his hand in the air and then go. Yeah. Well, picking up on what you were describing yeah. there, how a conversation gets off track, I had a meeting one time where there were six Christians and six Jehovah's Witnesses. And the way that Jehovah's Witnesses wanted to conduct it is they had their spokesman and we would have our spokesman, and I got nominated for that. And we asked if we could record the conversation. And he said, sure. So uh, I would give my point and he would, and this is typical of Jehovah's Witnesses, he would come back with a question that was off topic to try and get me to never conclude a point about any text of scripture. And then one of our groups said, would anybody like some water or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So while that person was out there getting something for everybody, the conversation of one-on-one devolved into two-on-two, three different conversations of two-on-two. The tape recorder is still running. And we got together afterwards and we're talking about our separate conversations. Yeah, we, it was good. We made good conversations. We went back and listened to the tape and were able to tune out the other two conversations going on and everybody was getting to first base because we were able to take away their tactic and hmm. get real with individuals. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's look at this. Uh, we're, we're, we're near to filling up the black the whiteboard, um, but I don't know if we need to get any. Does anybody looking at this just want to say, um, bye, um, it's been fun being interested in apologetics, but I'm out of here now. I, I, why would anybody want to get into this business when, when we face those kinds of risks? What, well, what I want to... Uh, to do here in, in the rest of our time together is to is to talk about two things essentially. One is how do we handle these kinds of spiritual risk factors, and what are some spiritual strengths that we have? What are some good things about being in this position, being educated in this way, being equipped in this way? So. There's a whole raft of things here. There's, there's, you know, we are at risk because we have to study the other side. I, somebody did a, uh, um, a, a thing on the Christian Apologetics Alliance Facebook group called "You Know You're an Apologist If," and one of the answers was, "You know you're an apologist if you're discussing which of, work, of Camus' works would be best to start with." A Christian studying, uh, discussing Camus. Camus was not exactly the reading that I do for uplifting joy and love and encouragement in the Lord. So we've got that. And that's the responsibility. Where's the passage? Second Corinthians where Paul's talking about the, all of the pain and all the things he's going for. And he says, on top of that, I have the burden, the weight of all the churches. And then we have to develop expertise, so we're studying off where it's the mind versus heart thing, the heaviness, lack of obvious success, the self-reliance, loneliness, anger, cynicism, pride, frustration, figuring out how to apply our skills and not to, being marked as targets. I added one that was kind of on topic of what someone was saying, that we're dealing with dishonest people sometimes. And um, 
it's not all just incompetence out there. Some of it's intentional dishonesty. What do we do as Christians to follow the Lord in joy and in, the, and in love and in power when we're dealing with all this? We do have an old whiteboard over here. The fastest I have ever prayed in my life was um, I was in living actually in, in the mountains of California, Big Bear Lake, somewhere in 1992. We had had a an earthquake nearby, about 20 miles away. It was 7.4 on the Richter scale. Very large earthquake. Uh, didn't make a lot of news for a couple reasons. One is it was in the desert, and there was nobody injured in it very much. And um, Hurricane Andrew hit South Florida very soon after after that and took all our news away. But the, the, there was a second earthquake three hours later that happened pretty much straight below us, and it was a 6.5. And my wife and I and our baby were outdoors watching our chimney do this. Stone chimney. And you never saw two people pray so fast in your life. God, don't let it fall. Don't let it fall. There were chimneys in houses like ours that fell into the house. And that's a housekeeping problem. My point here is that when you see a problem, when you're faced with a problem, your prayer life accelerates if you believe God is there. And maybe this is not all bad. The, not pointing at this person, but this whiteboard. Yeah. Maybe this isn't all bad. <laughs> but, but, by, by the grace of God, Tom. Yeah, that's right. But, but have, you ever, have you ever had that experience of praying, uh, your prayer life being accelerated by... The, uh, the challenges of your of, of your interactions and your, your your conflicts even anyone have a story to tell I ha- I've got one okay I got a fairly new professor and uh, was going out with a group of faculty and a couple of friends of faculty and uh, one of the guys was a retired philosophy professor in fact he had retired and then I had come in the next year. So in a way, I was kind of his replacement, though we did somewhat different stuff. And here we are sitting at a reasonably nice hamburger joint and uh, enjoying lunch, and up comes the topic of abortion. They're all on the same page with one another, right? Well, how could anybody oppose a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body, etc., etc., etc. I'm the only person there who's not on board with that. And I absolutely prayed. And because uh, they, they were doing, you know, well, look, what's more valuable, an acorn or an oak? Come on now. You know that, you know, they were, and they, because they could tell I was not with them. I had made one or two bleats. And they realized I wasn't. Uh, I Wait a minute. wasn't on the team. An acorn or an oak? Yeah, that's. That I'm was sorry. Their, 
Yeah. Or a retired okay. philosophy professor versus an up and coming. Yeah, professor. right. I got a lot more life ahead of me, right? Yeah, which, which, which one isn't a note? But keep going. Yeah, and so um, I prayed fast for words. I mean, sometimes you just have to pray for words. It's not enough to pray. Uh, Lord, sort of vaguely help me in some unspecified way. Like, have a brick fall on this guy's head. It, it, you actually pray for words. And when I looked up, I, I did feel a much greater sense of peace. And I looked in the eyes of the guy who had just said the, you know, the oak tree is of more value than the acorn. I said, why do we value an oak tree? What's good about an oak tree? Lots of things, right? It provides shade. It's beautiful. It supplies us with raw materials. And then I said, why do we value a human being? And suddenly he didn't want to say it was because they provide shade or are beautiful or <laughs> provided raw materials because suddenly it was coming a little close to home for him that maybe he could be viewed as something to be mined for raw materials. And he didn't have a whole lot of beauty going for him. Uh, ample shade. <laughs> and, uh, and the conversation was very quickly turned to another topic, which is not necessarily bad. Sometimes when that happens, you realize that a shaft went home. Yeah. But I tell you, before I bowed my head, that was not on my mind as something to say. That's good. So I do advise prayer, and I advise praying for words. There's also um, sometimes praying for silence when you know that you're about to say something that's going to do more harm than good. There's a definition of stress. I'll modify it slightly. It's a, what you experience when your mind overrides the body's basic biological reaction to choke the living daylights out of some idiot who desperately needs it. So we apologists can be subject to stress from time to time. And sometimes you need to, to pray for grace to just back off. Because you can do more harm than good sometimes. Well, what are some other ways that we as apologists can handle the spiritual risk factors. Yeah. Um, like, among all of our other studies that we're doing, always maintain, you know, our our daily, like, devotion and meditation in the Word of God yeah. as our foundation. Yeah. Um, daily, I don't... Focus. There's all kinds of words you could go in there. Meditation. Yeah. Something that for me goes along with that is the realization, and I have to keep coming back to this, that Christianity is not a thing out there like a castle where what I need to do is stand on the grass in front of the castle with my sword drawn and take on all comers. Christianity is 
a commitment and a way of life as well. Beyond the defense of it, it is itself the way we were meant to be. And it's easy to get wrapped up in defending it and not actually live it. And by this I don't mean going out and getting into sex, drugs, and rock and roll while at the same time being an apologist. Although, for some people, there have been very strange splits like that that can happen. Um, but I mean something simpler and a little bit subtler, which is the danger of treating Christianity always as if it's you know, the, the 98-pound weakling that needs to be defended by you. Actually, you need Christianity. Not because it makes you feel good to be a defender, but you need the blood of Christ, you need forgiveness, you need renewal, you need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you need growth. All of those things that normal Christians are supposed to have, guess what? You need that too. You're not exempt because you're up there on the IQ scale and you can parse irregular Greek verbs and you really understand a lot about Jehovah's Witnesses. All of that stuff is great, but you need to be filled and refreshed. Read the Psalms. One of my friends puts me to shame because he's very mild-mannered and uh, sweet. And, and it's not you, Tom, but <laughs> Tom also puts me to shame. Uh, this is a guy, he's, uh, he's a, the director of the Center for Science and Religion at Oxford. He's, uh, he's got a doctorate in philosophy like I do, but then he's also got a doctorate in theology, and he's also got a PhD in nuclear physics, and he's memorizing the Psalms, not as a boastful thing. He said, really, it's done wonders for my prayer life. Here's a man after God's own heart. Do you know how many of the Psalms are dark and despairing? Or are pouring out of confession to God for sin? I think he's up to about Psalm 100 right now. I want to know how long it takes him to go through Psalm 119. Maybe I don't want to know. But there's something, just as, as one suggested tool... If you're finding it hard to remember what it was that you and God were supposed to be having together that was something worth defending because you need it to, stop. <coughs> Put down your sword for a little while. Take some time. Read the Psalms. Read the pastoral epistles. See Paul weary and worn out but saying, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He doesn't say, I've defended the faith, though. Who among us could hope to do as much to defend the faith as Paul? He says, I've kept the faith. Yeah, um, I'm a member of uh, Reasons to Believe uh, Apologist Network, and so it's a good thing to network with mm. other apologists, whoever you find, to somebody has a question about the Garden of Eden, man, you can, you know, they've got the Hebrew on this or the Greek on that. Mm -hmm. It's really great that that uh, 
you know, people can contribute, you know, to science and biblical apologetics. So, so that, the, that we just posed a question and or, or or something where an unbeliever has challenged us, and uh, then the rest of the apologists can view that too. I mean, right. it's not maybe a question I've got so, today, but it might be five years from now. So let's connect, and if you and, and thank God for the internet and this. If you cannot connect with someone, if, and maybe you students here can connect with other like-minded people, but most of us aren't uh, able to find them that easily. But thank God for the for the Facebook groups that are uh, there are several of them. They're apologetics oriented, and uh, thank I I've got a blog called Thinking Christian where um, I get attacked, but I've got Christian friends who uh, who, who come. Alongside me, and I am so grateful when I don't have to answer all the questions. And I've met some of them face to face. It's fun. Um, yeah, Christian Apologetics Alliance is a Facebook group that you can request to join. And if there's an administrator who'll let you in, uh, which might be Tim's an administrator, and it, it might be me. Yeah, then you get in, and and it's. Uh, it's a pretty rousing but encouraging place to connect. And so that's the, 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 the gospel is very relational and it's for people to connect with each other. And sometimes when you need to connect with someone who's a little bit less likely to view you as the strange person, you can do it online. Yeah. Um, back in the 70s, early 70s, the only counter-cult ministry going was Walter Martin. Walter Martin right. right. And then in the mid to late 70s, a lot of um, counter-cult ministries sprung up, including ours, Watchman Fellowship, and a number of others. And we were very strange in the eyes of other Christians. You know, that's a weird, exotic-type ministry. And we felt that. And the only time we really felt connected was when we got together mm -hmm. we understood each other mm -hmm. and right. we could talk shop and it yeah. was fun you know? so, so we talked shop to people in the pews and <clears throat> really yeah and so the, the, the other thing that goes with this too is you don't have to just rely on the Facebook group you can do some research and find somebody if not at your own church at another church find somebody who's, who you can have coffee with um You've got to do that for your own spiritual health because otherwise you're going to start concluding that you're not only weird but pathologically weird. <laughs> Which, if you are, it's not because you're interested in apologetics. It's for some other reason. I'm not pronouncing everybody in here, including myself, free from pathologies. But that one doesn't have to be. But you need that for more reasons than what we just discussed. You need it because... You need a break from battle. Yeah. If you're always dealing with an opponent, you can come away with combat stress. And you need right. a, a way to relieve that. Mm -hmm. It also gives you a second opinion. I mean, as an engineer, you, know, you need those <laughs> second opinions because you can yeah. go into the black hole of, well, why didn't I think of that? You know, it's, it's the, you just don't see where the answer is and you, you give the wrong answer and uh, there's a sadness that goes with that so right. we need second opinions like does this make sense to you, you know? right 
I think another like main way that at least that I've come across that helps me like whenever I say if I am <coughs> engaging in battles or discussions that are just unnecessary, you know, that are fruitless, you know, like seeking God's wisdom in that situation and leaving the conversation or, you know, just yeah. not getting involved with the wrong battles. Some of you won't be able to see what I'm writing It's draining. Yeah. Um, back out. Um, strategically at times. And that reminds me of one that nobody's brought up, which is just to focus on Jesus Christ. And the reason it reminded me of that is because Jesus didn't stay in every battle to the end. In fact, he didn't stay in any battle very long. He stayed in it long enough to leave a mark, and then he um, you know, re-engaged frequently with the same people a little bit later. I guess he did. There, there were some extended ones. I have to correct what I just said. But... Um, but he also gave some advice in Matthew 7 that we sometimes have to apply. The, the uh, pearls? Yeah. And the, and the pigs? Yeah. So, but to me there's an awful lot of... What's the right word? I need a strong enough word. There's, there's encouragement, there's life, there's richness, there's, there's fellowship, there's everything in Jesus Christ and one of the things too is example and he didn't always win if if we count winning as being the one who was universally judged to be the victor in the in the uh, in the um, in the conflict in the in the combat he didn't always win that way so that means I don't have to and if you're going into the pastorate in particular and if one of your goals is to make everybody happy, realize that you're going to have to do something Jesus didn't accomplish. You don't have to. That's freeing to me. Thank God. Jesus Christ is at the center of what we're doing, and it's, it's, it's not just that he's the topic. He's the... He's the He's the heart. He's the focus. He's the reason. He's the he's the life, the way and the truth. I could go on and on, but I I get to do that some tomorrow morning. Yeah, uh, uh, kind of along that same line as you know. Also, like remembering, you know, the love of Christ and and sharing that love with with the people that we're trying to, you know, minister to, uh, rather than just trying to beat them over the head with our arguments, but really genuinely with a pastoral heart trying to win their souls to Jesus and remembering that, you know, Jesus loves them and wants to to save them. Okay, but there, there may be no harder commandment in the Bible than to love your enemies. So just to say we should do that is good advice. How do we get there? Um, are these the steps? Or is there steps? Maybe the wrong word. Are, the, are these the the disciplines? What what are we? Maybe that's the most important thing we need to talk about. In in uh, moving, I'm, actually, there's one more that I'm going to close with when we get to that. But um, how do we how do we build that love? I have a suggestion. 
and it comes from a pre-Christian Greek philosopher, Aristotle. Curiously enough, Aristotle, uh, who was no fool, he was a pretty wise guy, he talks about character formation, and he says something that has a sound basis in the observation of human experience. He says, within certain bounds, you have the capability of shaping your character. Do you want to be brave? Would you like to be a brave person? Do brave things. Would you like to become a generous person? Because he says that that is not your gift intrinsically. <coughs> Start doing generous things. Start now. While it's hard, because that will start to change you a little bit at a time. Would you like to become a person who is more holy? Practice some spiritual disciplines now when they don't seem to come naturally. Would you like to become someone who's better at prayer? Start praying. Use the Psalms as a model if you need to. Start somewhere. Yeah. Because this is a way that you can begin. By the grace of God, it can even help us to overcome things that, frankly, on our own and just trying, we're not going to overcome. But it is a bit of wisdom, I think. Well, the discipline that I probably need the most is to slow down and to wait on the Lord. As my... My primary apologetic-related interactions are on, on the blog, Thinking Christian, some on Facebook, but mostly on the blog. And someone will write something that either irks me for its stupidity or for its intended, um, it's intended to annoy me because it's a, it's a jab at me. And I have gotten pretty good at answering those kinds of things. I've been doing it for 10 years, and I know how to answer those things. I know what to do. And I have not yet learned to slow down as I should and pray before I answer. Um, so as I think about spiritual disciplines, that's the one that, if I were to practice, would probably be the more the most important thing that I could grow in. Maybe you've got some that you could think of in, in, in what we've done here. The Waiting on the Lord, there's a great book by Andrew Murray called Waiting on God. It's, I think, 30-some, 31. Meditations on the Psalms. Uh, encouragement to wait on God. Uh, so that would be another one. I'm not going to write it down. but um, Maybe something up here you see as being uh, a step that you can take to build your spiritual preparedness for the spiritual risk factors. Maybe there's maybe maybe there's something there that, that really might be the one thing that you would think about being the most important to step forward on. Maybe you could step forward on all of those at once, but <coughs> I I I. I probably in a group this size there would be 0.0, .0 people who could do all of those. <coughs> I'm speaking probabilistically here. Um, is there one thing up there that you think would be 
something to focus on the next day, week, month? I think that as apologists, we can dwell in the mental, the mental combat, and we need to realize that the person that we're doing combat with is a soul for whom Christ died. And we need yeah. to love that person, not think of them as a combat opponent. Yeah. And when you go to, and I get phone calls from people who are really in need of help because of a family or a friend who is getting involved with a cult. And if it was me trying to show off my smarts or something, the Lord wouldn't give me anything. Yeah. But if it's me caring about that person, the Lord will give me wisdom in the instant that I need it. Yeah. And with that mindset, the Lord can use us more. Yeah. Trusting in trusting in the Holy Spirit to uh, like, you know, shine a light shine the light of Christ into the people's hearts who are who are ministering to, you know, and not just relying on our own ability to try to persuade them. Because you won't do this for very long before you discover that you can't make them believe things. Yeah. Strange as it will seem, because they sure ought to, you can't do it. Does not, uh, you know, when I go to the expert to make a response to someone, I mean, I feel like it's a like a love card to some extent. Uh, I, I don't think I, I, I enjoy some kind of triumphal thing, but I hope that it goes out as a love thing. You know, sometimes the love's gonna be tough. But you know, when you when we're talking about you asked about love while ago, I mean, that's kind of yeah my love. I can't give them a million dollars, but you know, you, you're taking time, and if they see you've got the, the scriptural research behind it and background. It's customized to them. You know, you're not just sending something. Well, read these thousand pages and the answers in there somewhere. Yeah. If, if you've got it down to where they can see the love, then, right. you know, you've done your bit. It's, yeah. it's particularly important to do that when you're engaging people online. Face-to-face, -face, there are a thousand clues every minute that we give to one another of how we intend things, that we don't intend things the way that you might take them if we said them with a different expression on our faces or a little bit different body language. And all of those contextual clues are stripped away when you're sending a stream of words out. Yeah. And it's very easy. I've seen it happen. I've done it. I've looked back and said, oh, that looks a little harsher than I meant it. And you may be certain that if there's anything that can be taken, even if you didn't feel that way, that can be taken as harsh and insulting, that is how it will be received. Yeah. So what you're saying is doubly important when you're communicating, as so many of us do, typing things into chat boxes. That is really an art. Especially when you feel like leaning back, cracking your knuckles, and absolutely flattening this person, and that's where you've got to say, wait, hold it. Yeah, I like to put a little, and, and some, my purpose is this form of love. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, I just want, you know, you may have said a lot of tough facts, and you get, get the bottom to say that. You know, 
I, may you be blessed with this or something. May this improve your ministry, whatever. Right. A couple of words of encouragement. I, I, did, were you going to say something, John? Well, I was going yeah. to ask a question. Okay. This is something that's been brought up. And it's, it's the idea that I have, even though I know that most people... Uh, I, I would say most people are genuinely wanting answers to questions. But knowing that they're asking the question for a reason, and especially if it has to do with the problem of evil, that yeah. it's an emotional reason. Um, I'm wondering, and maybe what others in the room have, have run into also, <laughs> is it best just to answer the question or to try to get to the reason why the person is asking the question? So <coughs> I'm not sure if it's just best to, to keep it at the level that they, that they are asking because they feel secure there or to try and dig a little deeper, maybe if it's, especially if it's something you just met at a table out I, I know a situation that's probably on your mind. But thinking about that as a way of loving a person, too, and exploring yeah. and listening is a way of loving. I want to share a couple of encouraging words related to what we do. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In the NASB it says, are you not carnal and are you not walking like mere men? Hidden underneath that phrase, are you not carnal and walking like mere men, is the implication that we are not mere humans. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has come in the person of the Holy Spirit and has taken up residence in us. We have all of the power of God, not at our disposal, because we're at His disposal, but we have all the power of God with us. And as we grow in Christ, we are one with the power of God more and more and more and that's something the other side doesn't have it's not just the power of God though it's the fellowship it's the encouragement it's the direction it's the knowledge that comes from the, the filling of the Holy Spirit which by the way in, in, in Ephesians 5.18 it says um, be filled with the Spirit uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you go into the parallel passage in Colossians, and it says, be, um, with the word, I don't have the exact words, but it's, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Yes, so it's the spirit and the word. And together, we are not walking like mere humans if we have this relationship with God being livened and enriched by faith in Him, thus the Holy Spirit empowering us, directing us, the Word teaching us, 
We have, we have all the fullness of God. And in this group, I can say what I said this once at a church a few weeks ago, and the pastors said, keep it on the lower shelf. Um, in this group, I can say this. Um, all of God fits here, and all of God fits everywhere, because when God created space, he wasn't wondering where to put it. God is not in space. Space is not in God. That when you walk from one side of the room, you're not walking from one part of God to the other. God is all here. God is all there. God is all everywhere. You've got all of God. And they knew it in the early church when they were told, didn't, yeah. didn't we tell you guys to stop doing this? Well, we've got to obey God rather than men. Yeah. Now the other word that, that I want to encourage us with is, um, why didn't that go back to the passages in? 1 Peter 3.12, I think. Um... Where is it? I had it a second ago, and I thought it was 1 Peter 3. It's, it says, do not be surprised at the fire, fiery trial. 1 Peter 4.12. Um, beloved, 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know the part where it says we have to learn the other side? We are the people who are more likely to be awake and unsurprised because we know we're, a, we're ahead of the rest of the church in our awareness of what's coming at us. And that's good, because the Bible tells us not to be surprised. We can be that warning uh, alarm to the rest of the church about the, 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 the attack of the new tolerance or of relativism and so on. But if there's anybody in the church who's going to be not surprised at the fiery trial, it ought to be us. Because we are... The vanguard. And that's kind of fun. I like being out on the front lines. I like being at risk. I like being where God is. I have to rely on God. I like being where I can be shot at. Part of the reason is because of first of Peter 4.13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may... Uh, also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Then he goes on and says, don't, don't, let, um, don't, don't suffer as a meddler or a, a murderer or an evildoer, but if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. We are at risk. We are, as apologists, on the front lines. We are, I say this about the work I do with Rasho Christie, doing uh, apologetics on a college campus. I'm very aware that we are poking a finger in Satan's eye. And so there is a sense of risk and danger in there. And if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We have the opportunity to experience and to, uh, to express 
and to demonstrate the glory of God that is unique to our calling and our in our endeavor. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the risks. I am very concerned about my own spiritual health, that I not be proud, that I not be self-reliant, that I not be rushing ahead of God because I know I can do all of those things. But I'm okay with being on the front lines. My life verse is... If, if I had one, would be Habakkuk 2.14, that the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. I cannot wait until the glory of the Lord, which already fills the earth, is known through all the earth. And when the, uh, when the party happens, there is going to be a party. They have a party at the, at the end of a championship season, right? And if you're a football, volleyball, chess team, whatever. Um, sorry. I don't know what chess team party. We have like. epic parties. You haven't been invited to one yet. Yeah, I know. So when the party comes at the end of the season and your team has won, would you rather have been out on the field? Would you rather have been say, put me in, coach, put me in, coach, or would you rather be the guy... We said, I'm glad we won, and I'm glad I got to be on the bench watching that. I'm glad I'm at the party. Which one would you rather be? Player. Player, yeah. And if you get hit, God is inside you. You're glorifying God if you respond in Him. So think through, as I have been out loud, some ways that you can be strengthened in your spiritual life, but... Don't take this all as being negative. We're just at risk. We have something that we can experience uniquely that I'd love to share. I wouldn't like it to be as unique as it is. But it is an experience that God offers us as we're on the front lines of spiritual battle. Spiritual battle is not just Ephesians 6. It's also 2 Corinthians 10 where it's, where it's um, uh, defeating arguments and pretensions. We're on the front lines, and I'm okay with that. That's what I wanted to leave. Uh, I, if there's any further uh, words of encouragement or comment or response, we can have that, and then we'll close. Anybody want to respond? Wait, yeah. Wait.